Beyond Oil, Carbon Neutrality by 2050. Interview with Adam Shazetsky, episode 44. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Adam Shazetsky, the chief economist at PKN Orlean. I'll describe PKN Orlean as a Polish oil and gas firm actively diversifying into lower and zero carbon fields. I got the opportunity to sit down with Adam while I was in Warsaw, and I'm extremely grateful for his time and willingness to share his thoughts on the energy transition. One of the reasons I wanted to start a podcast was to share some of the interviews I have with experts while doing my own academic research. I've interviewed Adam in the past, and I always found him very knowledgeable and holding a broad view of energy markets. In this episode, you'll get more than an insight into the workings of oil and gas markets. You'll get a thoughtful discussion on where companies are heading as they lower their carbon outputs and invest into more lower and zero carbon technologies. It is possible that some listeners may object to my conversational sit-down style with a representative of the oil and gas world. I remember a conference I attended in 2019 when the chief economist for Equinor got not only a frosty reception, but a hostile one from the academic and policy audience at the conference. I was a bit surprised, as a person may work for these organizations, but we still need their expertise to move away from fossil fuels. I think Adam's big picture thinking demonstrates how fossil fuels are seen as unsustainable even by the companies producing them. Thus, the bigger structural question is, how do we change the energy, political, and economic system so we don't have fossil fuels? My approach to understand and assist in the energy transition is to listen to a range of opinions. This is why I do the podcast. In this interview, you'll learn that Adam, before he joined PK and Orlean 12 years ago, was an outsider himself. He shares his perspective and questioning of the sustainability around not just fossil fuels, but global consumption of energy and materials. Even as he points out, the benefits of plastics are too good even for plastic. That is, plastic turns out to be too cheap and too good for a consumer society, and of course, bad for the environment. Nonetheless, the lightweight and durable properties of plastic make it useful for the energy transition. So there's a lot of complexity, we'll say, in this transition. Adam provides a pivotal acknowledgement and voice that says, yes, our present consumption patterns are not environmentally sustainable, but he also outlines how an oil and gas firm can make the transition to be carbon neutral by 2050. This seems unbelievable from an oil and gas firm. At least I was highly skeptical before speaking to him. But as you'll hear, this could actually be achievable. I'll just say also if we could change our political and and political system and kind of the structural support that keeps fossil fuels in the mix. Particularly when we when you consider how the firm is di- diversifying into wind farms, this is PK and Orlean, and they're investing into developing new technologies that are not just reliant on fossil fuels or reduce emissions w- for fossil fuels. Depending on where you live and your background, you may be dismissive of what can we learn from a pol- Polish oil and gas firm. As dedicated as the Polish government appears to be towards coal, it is important to understand the world. Technology and firms are changing regardless of what is in the headlines. It may be a question of how fast we make the transition or if fossil fuel firms will really move away from oil and gas. These are points for arguments. But at least from this interview, 
you'll gain an understanding of the market forces at work that keep fossil fuels as petrochemical feedstocks in the near, if not distant future, for good or for bad, or probably both. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. And now for this week's episode. I'm here today with Adam Chizewski. He's the chief economist at PKN Orlean. And Adam, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Welcome. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really, I'm really happy to have you. We had a bit of a uh, time beforehand to discuss the world and oil markets and gas markets, and we're going to get to to all that. But my first question to you is: How did you get involved in the oil and gas sector or the energy sector in general, and why is it so interesting for you? I mean, uh, that was quite tricky because I uh, joined the company 12 years ago uh, as a person who can predict exchange rates, oil prices, etc. Because my background uh, is I'm a econometrician by profession. I studied econometrics. I made my PhD in econometrics. I completed econometrics at the University of Łódź, Poland, but also studied at Stanford and at the University of Pennsylvania as a Fulbright oh, uh, grantee a long time, a long time ago. And then, after let's say 14, 15 years work uh, at the university, I moved gradually to more applied economics and uh, first it was a joint center for central statistical office and the polish academy of sciences where i work on introduction of system of national accounts to the polish statistics because before transition we have the russian material product system uh, then i work for the world bank or as a macroeconomist for poland uh, you know uh, assisting on uh, to Poland's government on reforms, various reforms, uh, and I also run my own think tank, which is called NOBI, Independent Center for Economic Studies, with uh, two of my colleagues, and we were uh, basically doing impact assessment of European integration, but we also, because we established this think tank in 1992, we were very much interested in macro, in uh, GDP, in uh, inflation, etc. And we published quarterly forecasts, which were at the time published by Reuters. And the National Bank of Poland in 1998, when uh, assumed uh, direct inflation targeting, needed to have a tool, a forecasting tool. And there's a nice forecasting tool, but it's actually macroeconomic to forecast the inflation. But as an input, you have to have GDP forecast. So just to begin with, they ask Nobby to provide GDP forecast. And actually, instead of providing the forecast as a service, I decided to be employed by National Bank of Poland as an advisor to the governor. But then I, after a year, I became a head of uh, research and uh, economic analysis at the National Bank of Poland. And uh, 
this capacity responsible for inflation reports and you know that for inflation at that time the most important factor were oil prices which were called the mother of oil of all prices mm -hmm. yes so this was the 1980s yes yes and 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 actually uh, uh, pk nolan when was looking for a chief uh, economist they were looking for someone who was able to predict exchange rate and uh, let's say oil prices uh, which actually i mean meaning predict literally and uh, when i joined the company in 2007 it was just before a crisis and it came up out very you know quickly that uh, you know, I can't predict any prices, you know, but really. <laughs> so that was uh, the big question mark, what I would be doing there. But, uh, you know, I find out, of course, I'm doing uh, things uh, with uh, regard to oil prices, exchange rate, interest rates, etc. But because we need it for financial operation, for financial plans, um, etc. in different horizons. But I... I just uh, was uh, very interested in economics of climate change. You know, in 2008, 2009, everyone I met and asked about this, uh, you know, so people were divided into two groups. They were believers and non-believers. And I wanted to know what is behind that. You know? and wait, wait, so you joined an oil and gas company because you were interested in climate change? I, I became interested in climate change after joining the, the, the company because okay. I find out that this is something which must be you know very crucial for us in long and term. And actually in 2010, I wrote an internal report, uh, PKN uh, against you know climate change challenge and uh, how we should position ourselves. And uh, my my advice from this report was, you know first, that focusing on whether you know climate change is anthropogenic or not is a wrong question because you know we may spend life on it and it's difficult and as in science there are people who say yes it is there are others who say no it isn't but i find out very quickly that this is the quite different issue that the world is going this direction it has a lot to do with environment pollution etc it's a you know it's a product of uh, economic model and increasing number of people so yes. you know uh, when i was young there was you know like 2 millions or less people uh, billions of people mm -hmm. all over the world so you could throw away things to the forest and the forest could you know do, do the job actually there was no plastic to throw away or you know plastic was quite let's say uh, not i don't say that expensive but valuable because when plastic was invented it was invented as something which would protect the environment not to pollute the environment mm -hmm. yes 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 so different yeah but i, I want to go back uh mm -hmm. to because it was really something that you ended up in the united states as you you would know in the 1970s and in the 80s, and how, how did you get to Stanford University and then Penn State? Penn, it was Penn, Penn State? But yes, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. I mean, Poland participated in Fulbright uh, programs, but at that time, 
these Fulbright programs were organized in different way. Uh, you know, it was not like uh, simply because now you can apply it from the street, you know, you yeah. just apply. And at that time it was organized by ministry, by, you know, the, and every university, you know, uh, could uh, provide candidates for this uh, scholarship. I mean, uh, I was a student who completed you know my study with uh, diploma of excellence my my uh, uh, professor was uh, was uh, not only dean of faculty but then became a, 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 a rector of the university of Łódź. he he had a very good contacts abroad and uh, actually i first i got a place to go and second, we were looking for a way to how to finance it. Yes. You know, so because usually in the Fulbright grant you apply and then you indicate to uh, places where you want to go and the Fulbright Foundation, you know, tries to locate it. But I've I've got a, let's say letters that I will be simply admitted to to the to the Stanford. It was a Department of Economics, and uh, and to the Pennsylvania University of Pennsylvania, because um, I work on on uh, macro models, econometric macro models of the Polish economy, and at that time there was a, a link project run by Professor Lawrence Klein, who got a Nobel Prize for it, and this link project was a project where simulation of behavior of global economy was done using uh, country models and uh, my job was to link the model into the into the system so therefore i was at the university of, of pennsylvania but before i went to stanford just uh, because these models were connected through uh, import export so mm -hmm. at the time trade goods and Part of my PhD thesis was, uh, you know, modeling of international relations, trades, and the guy who really did a lot in this field was uh, Professor Lawrence Lau, this uh, Chinese guy who was a professor at Stanford, and I wanted to really go there because there was a lot of knowledge, and as as a matter of fact. A kind of a source of this type of of things. Uh huh. So, but that really set you up quite well. <laughs> I mean, to become in your current job, but through all these different different roles, then as well. And because so, you've been your entire life been looking almost been looking at the flow of trade and currency as part of that, and the behavior of countries. Then yes, actually, uh -huh. I must say that uh, my, uh, I mean, from the prospect uh, when I look back. So actually, I was doing all the time more or less the same thing. But at the university, I, I was, uh, as econometrician, you know, I was much more focused on models, you know. So the economy was a kind of a source of data, but, you know, the, the, the clue was to make a model, you know. Yeah, you were looking at the data. Sophisticated uh -huh. model, etc. So estimators properties uh, mathematical statistics this type of 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 influence 
Then I move gradually to apply economics just to apply this model. And then I find out that it's not so easy because, you know, if you have a model which is very elegant in, let's say, scientific, by scientific conditions, you know, it's very often not very useful. For example, we had, I constructed the model for the impact of in late of 80s Poland, actually formally default, not, not formally, but factually defaulted. We didn't serve our debt. Because we didn't serve our debt, we had a problem with getting, you know, uh, sources to finance import. And import became, became uh, let's say, bottleneck for production. If, uh, you know, like right now, you know, we are waiting for cars uh, VW uh, cars, which are not uh, provided to, to us because some, let's say, electronic parts are missing and they, they are done in Korea, but there is a shortage of it that we have to, to wait. So small parts may stop all your, your you know, uh, production. That was the case in Poland as well. And in that time, in order to explain very well, you know, the impact of such um, restriction, the one-factor production function was the best one, instead of sophisticated other factors. So the sim the very simple model explained the, the reality, and you didn't need such a you know a, let's say complex complex model. things to analyze. And as a matter of fact, these complex things they they had embedded substitution, so they behave in in reality, much worse than those simple models. So this is one one of my my uh, lessons I've got. Then I had uh, I run my own company, so I was selling forecasts and and analysis. Then I worked for the National Bank of uh, at the World Bank when an advice reform. So also you know there was support using economic knowledge to to support uh, in the 1990s yes world. yes uh -huh. to 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 uh, i worked for the world bank from 1995 to 2000 to to, to i i provide advice but you know educated advice so yes. you need tools for it and in national bank of poland you know the, the models are used to create policy yes. yes it's it's quite different thing and for example then i learned that it's not enough to, I mean, to to build a model, and and you know to have a model by institution. Uh, to have a model by institution means that, you know, you have really. The model has to be embedded in this institution, which means that, the the knowledge of institution should be consumed by this model, and it, it requires to have a procedure. Yes, how mm -hmm. to how to create the, let's say, the forecast. So you have first to, you know, to talk about discuss data, then, uh, you know, with expert, then with dissident, because model of, uh, the model for inflation forecasting uh, was constructed by, let's say, National Bank of Poland staff, but it was used by Monetary Policy Council. And Monetary Policy Council was quite an exempt body from National Bank of Poland uh, staff. And they, in order to, you know, use the forecast, they had 
to simply put their okay on the model. Yes. So we discuss with them how the model. So we proposed, and this tools. is the 1990s. It or, was uh, from uh, 2000 uh, until 2007. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it's a professional relationship yes, because the economy yeah. in Poland was in a really bad shape after 1990, and yes. even through mid 2000s. Yeah, it, uh -huh. it was in, in in a bad shape, but actually. To our surprise, you know, it really recovered uh, pretty, uh, pretty well. I remember in this uh, think tank, I I ran with my colleagues, uh, two colleagues. Uh, we produced a forecast. It was the forecast which was which was commissioned by, at that time, you know, the the like you know European Commission, and. They wanted to have a optimistic but realistic scenario of economic development of Poland up to the year 2005, in 1992. Uh -huh. And we, uh, we constructed such a scenario and published it in 1993. And Poland uh, in 1990 had 17% uh, fall of GDP. In 1991, it was like seven and a half. In 1992, was minus one. So, you know, wow. in three years was a very deep recession, and we came out with the conclusion that Polish economy can grow on average by four and a half percentage point up yeah. to year 2025 on on average. On average. Yes, yeah. and. That was something which uh, was very difficult to to convince, you know, this to convey this this message. Uh -huh. But uh, I mean, it was not a forecast, but it was a optimistic by realistic scenario. So we constructed it that way. But at the end of the day, in two thousand five, when uh, there was research about the you know which referred to the Polish economic history of transition. It found out that we actually did it. Wow, yes. your, your projection was right. Yes, about yeah, in, in terms of GDP, uh -huh. because there were other parts of projections which were you know not not very very let's say accurate. I mean uh, exchange rate, because you know we underestimated the. The transition to convertible currency, and uh -huh. you know the 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 fact that our our currency become convertible, that we will join, uh, let's say OECD, that we will uh, you know make our currency. Did you yeah pr uh, forecast it as as weaker or actually we thought that we would yes because we thought that we would simply keep it uh, controlled so which mm -hmm. means that. Too strong currency will uh, spoil the economy, but uh, as a matter of fact, it wasn't the case. Yeah, you know, yeah. appreciation was when you look at the economic history and data, you will see that we had a strong appreciation at the same time, very strong current account. Yes, and yes. balance. Excellent. Okay, I won't get into this. All I'll just say is, I think the last time I was in Warsaw was three years ago. And just walking around Warsaw, it's tremendous, the changes. And I've been coming here since 98, I think. And and yeah, I mean, you, we can look right out your window, right? And look at the, the huge buildings. I, I, just 
Um, may, maybe maybe stepping back as the economist and just say maybe as a poll yourself living here, how what have the changes you've seen in the past twenty years or thirty years? I mean, there are big changes, and 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 uh, I think that you know if I were to simply uh, to go through the process once again. I think that I would do do one only one thing better, which means that we rely our our let's say economic transition too much on the convergence, mm-hmm. a too little on let's say innovations. Uh, of course, you know if you focus on convergence, you simply create. Conditions for capital inflows, direct investment inflows, etc., and you grow fast because you import technology, and there is a short uh, period when you you know make profits from this, etc. But once you put effort in developing your own technologies, then it becomes more risky. You know, it takes time; it's more expensive, but at the end of the day, it simply is the only way you can really grow. Yeah. It's, if, it's if more you, domestic in, yes, innovation taking. If, if you want to be, you know, a developed country like we aspire to be, and in many aspects we, we we already are, we have to have, you know, our own products. So we have to develop our own technologies which we will uh, and create our own value chains not to be at the end of the value chain but create a you know center of the value chain and you can't import this you have to create it and we simply uh, put too little attention to to this process so we thought that um, because if you open the economy for competition in any areas, of course, the quick wins will simply override, you know, this uh, long uh, efforts, which um, not certain what they will bring, and it takes time. Yeah, so that's something we now have to really accelerate, and and. Uh, Frankly speaking, in this company, we are doing these things. I and and part of my job is uh, was just to in the company to create, let's say, uh, because in order to make such things happen, you have really to to do a kind of internal lobbying for it. So to bring the knowledge to showcases, you know, to to really. Um, just to, uh, it's like internal education. We have to learn ourselves a lot, uh, and and you know just pass this all this knowledge further. And and now we in PK and Orland in our strategy, uh, because we declared that we become net zero emitter by twenty fifty, and it's not possible. Uh, if you don't have your own, uh, you know, technologies in some areas, because uh, if we want to be a leader in the region, so leader 
has to provide something which other would follow yeah or yes. so and we have to, to to develop our own technologies and we already have vehicles to uh-huh. to do it maybe we should reflect on that and move away from polish economic development i love it but and 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 yeah exactly this 2050 strategy the climate be climate up an oil and gas company let me mm-hmm. like frame it like this an oil and gas company says they're going to be climate or yeah climate neutral by 2050 so what does that actually mean what that actually mean i mean climate neutral exactly it means that by 2050 we as a company we should provide our we should first you know produce things and services you know by zero emissions so we have to carp all emissions from production this is a very easy part compared to to the other but we also have to make sure that our providers are zero emitting mm-hmm. so it's so called scope uh, these are the scopes 1 2 and 3 but mm-hmm. one is you know you restrict or reduce your own emissions you reduce emissions from your providers which you can simply select providers but if you take it globally then everybody has to to do it and third which is more tricky and difficult part we have to provide our customers with goods and services which are zero emission products and services and we are fueling transport and transport right now you know runs almost exclusively on uh, gasoline diesel which are fossil fuels so in order to decarbonize fossil fuels uh, you know uh, to decarbonize fuels in transport we have to move away from fossil fuels as far as we can to zero emission fuels and those fossil fuels which we which will be needed for the economy and we will be provided uh, we have to offset those emissions just to become uh-huh. and what what kind of offsets do you have in mind or that how how will you offset those emissions i mean kind of, i i know it's early so yes uh-huh. it's it's early so so our strategy because we publish we declare year ago that we more than year ago that we become net zero emitters uh, by 2050 and we publish our strategy when we show in details how we want to do it by 2030 because that we can show uh, you know technology by by technology but after 2030 you know there is a kind of technology uncertainty and which uh, does not mean that we will wait until uh, the you know this uncertainty disappears because it always will be you know if you look at the technology 10 years ahead you always have uh, uncertainty but in order to uh, you know we have to invest today in uncertain technologies and uh, to have a kind of a portfolio of you know those technologies because we don't know at the end of day which technology will you know dominate or will you know be prevailing in the market or you know profitable so we change the concept from uh, of the company from 
fuel company to multi-energy company because we have to keep our leg still in fossil fuels in order to squeeze value out of it, but to invest, you know, the money in technology of the future. So uh, in future fuels, which we see uh, in longer term, you know, uh, hydrogen yes, as a fuel, but this is a fuel for transportation, maybe not for all means of transportation, but certainly, you know, we will begin with city transport, with railroad, oh. you know, because this is something which 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 can um, can be simply uh, introduced. Uh, it, it provides you a kind of a, a scale. Then we uh, so, but we also invest in, uh, let's say, biofuels. Yes, uh, biofuels uh, as a mean to. Uh, lower carbon emission from fossil fuels because you when we mix it you yes. know then then it provides uh, provides a, a, a lower emission fuel and all uh, the way approach to this was to mix products let's say uh, you know the diesel with biodiesel let's yes. call it uh -huh. and 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 gasoline with you know alcohol yeah, ethanol so, uh -huh. yes uh -huh. ethanol but the the most clever thing is to uh, to mix the crude oil with uh, you know uh, with uh, let's say used cooked oil etc and put it through refinery okay it's it's called uh, it's a, it's called i forgot the the name of of it but it's it has a special special name for this process but actually you know, you you then you produce uh, all fuels. You produce they they you know it's are composed of of uh, re renewable uh, like a higher content carbons share. and 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 fossil. Uh -huh. So you can like get a higher bio content. Yes, yes, in the... yes because mm -hmm. you get a stable fuel. You know, out of it because uh -huh. when you do it properly, actually, you know, there's we run such tests. You can do 100%, you know, fuels like gasoline and diesel by refining, let's say, uh, used uh, cooking oil. Yes. Yes. And then if you put this through the refinery, because these are hydrocarbons, uh, you you get, you know, uh, gasoline and they, they this gasoline and and uh, diesel fuel will have the same properties like fossil, but they will be in whole cycle zero uh -huh. rather than adding it at the end yes yeah because mm -hmm. if you add it then you get unstable fuels because they absorb water etc and engines doesn't like it okay and so so this is this is one one way and this is way uh, because sometimes some people say okay transport will be electric at the end of the day and and therefore, you know, it's a waste of time to go through, uh, let's say, biofuels. But actually, first, not all transport will be electric, and biofuels are now considered as the sustainable fuel for uh, air. Oh, air quality. Yes, uh -huh. uh, not not for air quality, oh. but for uh, planes. Oh yeah, right. Yes, yes, air yes, transport. Yes. 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 Uh -huh. Yeah. But but this is like an example then of. 
this is an example of uh, technology and the investment that you have to make now or you did a few years ago that requires the 10-year time frame that you're talking actually, about. Actually, you know, with um, biofuels, we are quite advanced. And we even have, you know, a biorefinery in Shebinia when we produce, you know, biodiesel and other components. Uh, I mean, and these biofuels, they, they are also ways to decarbonize uh, uh, petrochemical products. Because uh -huh. many of petrochemical products you can uh, produce from biocomponents, from uh, hydrocarbons, which uh, are made of, of biofuels. And as we look for the future, so the technologies we really see that they will have value in the future is to go from, let's say, city waste, mm -hmm. which are not recyclable. So those city waste, which uh, simply right now, what you do is it, they are usually burn, you know, in, in special installation, produce electricity. Yeah. Yes, but then you have e emission of CO2. But if you use a technology like, it's called pyrolysis, which means that you burn in a very high temperature, then you separate, you know, this, uh, you, you, you get as an output two streams. One stream is, is hydrogen, and second is CO2. And they are pure streams, and you, this CO2 is captured already because, you know, it's like you can re reverse it again to production. You can use hydrogen, and instead of ashes, which are polluting, you get a solid, uh, you know, substance. You can use in, uh, let's say, construction oh. as a, you know, uh, like a stone or, or yes. like a building construction material. Oh. So it's quite promising technology. And we are now working with European Commission in the special teams on uh, taxonomy just to treat this uh, hydrogen yes. from this process the same way or, 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 or just to give this hydrogen obtained from this pyrolysis of uh, waste as a hydrogen which is, uh, comes from electrolysis because first it's a pure hydrogen, second you know it's a fully recyclable because it's made waste it solves the problem of waste and, and, and you know, pollution, and uh, it's economically, you know, let's say efficient. Yes. Whereas if you take electrolyzers, you need a lot of water to mm -hmm. this process. And I'm not an engineer, but when I listen to the, you know, uh, uh, debates, uh, people point out that that you know this uh, hydrogen from electrolysis uh, requires uh, quite a lot of water, which may be a problem in in some regions. There are technologies when you can produce hydrogen from salted water, but it's not so advanced. Yes, it's much more expensive. Mm -hmm. So, so when you're talking about the carbon, we'll get back to this climate neutral by 2050. It is really looking at these types of technologies at each stage of the process. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, with hydrogen, the problem is that 
in Europe, actually, there is a lot of you know hydrogen production, but this is let's say intermediate use. We are the fourth producer of hydrogen in Europe, but we do it for our own purpose. We need it for for uh, just uh, processing of crude because if you have uh, hydrocarbons, these chains, and you crack them, they in order to have them, you know, these cracked chains shorter, stable, you have to fill these gaps with hydrogen, you know, and okay. and then you know this hydrogen uh, simply seals, you know, these uh, links, missing links, and and then, then you get uh, new substances. So we need, need this. Uh, we also produce hydrogen as a byproduct. And this hydrogen is, has a better position in, in EU taxonomy because as a byproduct, you know, it's not uh, treated uh, as a hydrogen which uh, emits something. But uh, this is not what uh, European Union actually, Union actually prefers they prefer this pure hydrogen from green electricity and water and we want also to include or to give the same status for hydrogen which is made from uh, waste because it's pure and the co2 is captured already and you know if you are able to return the co2 not to atmosphere mm -hmm. but just to the production again for example in the form of let's say synthetic fuel or whatever uh -huh. as an input to petrochemical products then you know you have really you know uh -huh. clean hydrogen okay so uh, first i have a simple question and then it's more complex but uh so what color is this hydrogen if there's pink hydrogen for nuclear power uh green hydrogen from renewables blue hydrogen what what color is this hydrogen i mean we actually <laughs> green hydrogen is uh, According to EU, green hydrogen is from water and green electricity because it has, according to EU and culture, no side effects. You know, when you have a hydrogen from nuclear power, so nuclear power creates, when you generate nuclear power, at the end of the day, you have nuclear waste, which you don't know what to do with. So therefore, this is not treated as a green. But we want this biohydrogen, which is not green according to EU uh, taxonomy right now, we want to to classify this as a green because its production doesn't have a you know a side effect for environment. Actually, it improves condition of environment because it solved the problem of uh, of you know let's say city waste, but mm -hmm. also you can do it from from let's say. Uh, organic waste from, you know, agriculture. Right, and can you invest in that yeah. too? And then my other question, it's more, I would say, controversial than I would say what label does this type of hydrogen have, but it's the role of petrochemical and the petrochemical plants and petrochemicals because uh, obviously the world needs plastic. I'll keep it simple, plastic mm -hmm. and everything that comes from a petrochemical plant, which you know more than me. And so that, that comes from oil, that comes from gas. And so even beyond 2050, we'll be using oil and gas in the petrochemical process, I'm guessing. And, and what, what, what is the future of petrochemical um, plant, I guess, in 2050 or even in 2040? 
I think that, you know, here there's a big gap uh, between uh, what, let's say, IPCC thinks in its report and what the industry thinks. And I think that, you know, it's... Um, We publish a report on, 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 on petrochemical because we invest in petrochemical a lot. We see a future in it. And I just explain why and why I think that, you know, uh, this uh, uh, approach of, uh, you know, uh, let's say green, uh, I don't want to call it lobby, but those who want to green the, the, the economy, etc., is... Uh, not quite feasible you know world needs materials people needs materials we consume too much we have so called you know this overconsumption and in order to uh, 55% of emission comes from energy but 45 from material material consumption so in order to be sustainable one has to really think in terms of reducing uh, the the, the volume of materials we use to consume. And it, it can be done in, in many ways. Uh, of course, you know, recycling, circular economy is, is uh, with all this stuff uh, around this designing, etc., using, repairing, reducing, but we also have to change our habits. But anyway, uh, regardless of that, we need to produ produce this material out of something. And there is plenty of studies which show that simply plastic is very good thing to do it. And that's out of uh, question. You know, the, the, what is bad with plastic is that it's, I mean, it's a victim of its own success. It's too good and too cheap, you know, and uh, so people, uh, it's overconsumption of plastic. So plastic should be more expensive, um, you know, and, and, you know, we should uh, use it less. We should generate plastic, which is recyclable. We should generate plastic, which uh, simply, so less uh, variants of plastic, but focus on, uh, on uh, such a purposes, uh, features like, you know, easy to recycle chemically or, you know, whatever, but uh, just to return it again and, and lower and lower the, the, so if we replace, let's say, uh, packaging materials with plastic, we actually have a benefits because plastic on average is four times uh, lighter. So you, we use four times less plastic to serve the, the, the purpose. Yes, and, and uh, emission from plastic and, and alternative, uh, or let's say not emission, but this uh, environmental, you know, footprint is comparable. It's less, yeah. Yes, uh, it's because comparable. Because it's so light. Uh -huh. And of course, we have a civilization which uh, grew up on, on uh, plastics, like, you know, you have like computers and all this isolation materials, yes. which... You know, we need it. We need this stuff. And we can do it either from oil and gas or from, let's say, bio 
component. But if you take into account, you know, the possible possible uh, applications of these biocomponents in, let's say, transport fuels, in other things, etc. So I talked today to my colleagues about, you know, the, the decarbonization of transport. And I ask, you know, why not to use, you know, biofuels for decarbonizing transport? Because if you produce biofuels, which means they, they are, biofuels are zero emission in full cycle. So if you pour it to the, you know, car engine, you know, you have emissions, but this, this is in full cycle, you know, you don't add to the global emissions. And the answer was, we have, you know, we are short in supply of biocomponents. Mm. And if we would like to change, I mean, the, the humanity needs more materials. We will restrict, you know, this use of materials by, you know, this uh, circular economy. But anyway, we will need them. And what alternative? It looks like this is the supply of biocomponents, these organic things, will be, you know, not enough to satisfy these needs. But on the other hand, we can, we know that we can simply uh, produce plastic from oil and gas in sustainable manner. Actually, when you look at transport and oil, and you take 100% of, of uh, let's say, uh, emissions from oil applied in transport, from you know the, the, the well to the wheels, so it's like 12% of emissions are in upstream, 8% in uh, factory, in refining, 80% is in uh, combustion engine, yes? But from refining, you know, the fuel may go not as a fuel to transport, but as a feedstock to petrochemicals. Okay, yes. And, and then we, you know, the emissions from production are manageable because we, we have tools and, let's say, and uh, technologies to, to curb those emissions. Uh, extraction of oil, you know, if you do it in a lower, let's say, quantities, because we are talking about using oil in petrochemical industry and in scenarios which are zero emission globally, you know, the consumption of oil will shrink by 70% compared, I mean, to what we have now. So there will be much less oil which can be extracted from places which are, let's say, safer, easier to access, et cetera, et cetera. So it can be simply, uh, simply done. And there are technologies like uh, which European Commission uh, simply uh, was very, uh, was promoting those uh, technologies years ago like carbon capture. Yeah. And uh, now there is a, then there was a period of simply lack of interest. Now they come back 
because we can't go directly, I mean, fully from uh, molecules to electrons. We need, you know, these molecules and, and uh, what to do with the excess of emissions. We have to simply capture it. And there are technologies of direct emission capture from air. And is that, is that storing it? Capturing the emissions, the CO2 emissions, I and think, using it, or just storing it? I, I, I think that we will use it because, you know, the, the CO2 is, a, is a quite a necessary material for, for production, for example, for petrochemical production, because when you capture CO2 and you have hydrogen, you can um, combine it and make synthetic uh, hydrocarbons, yes, like mm -hmm. synthetic fuels which go to the, to the production. So, so I think that there is a future in oil as a, uh, you know, uh, resource for, you know, production of, of uh, materials, various materials, because petrochemicals and, and chemistry provide you with a variety of different applications and it also can be simply recycled. So therefore, for example, in, in countries which live on oil, I mean, they, of course, you know, they promote it also. So they, uh, they are talking about circular carbon economy. And I think it, you know, it makes sense globally because, of course, in the European Union, you can imagine the world without it. But uh, we are um, emitting as a region only 7% of global emissions. We are the richest nations, yes? And we have to think about solutions for, you know, countries like Africa, like Asia, when we will have increasing population there. And, and there are, I mean, uh, developed countries, lower income, and we should provide them with a solution they can afford. Yeah. Because uh, I can hardly imagine right now, for example, you know, electrification of Africa. Maybe in long term, of course, uh, some say uh, the world will be digital. Everything which is digital will be electric. So electric city is the future. And this is a direct, you know, energy from sun. And this is something which really, you know, talks to the... Uh, to me as a, as a solution, but the way to every country, every region has to go its own way, you know, the way which is adjusted to, to uh, incomes, to affordability, because this is a very, very important thing, because at the end of the day, the pace of transition will be, or will be, uh, decided by the uh, the pace of demand transition. Mm -hmm. So the pace we will change our behavior. Of course, industry has to provide solutions, but you know this, uh, we have to accept those solutions. We have to afford mm -hmm. them. But know? but my question then is: Is it almost uh, in one sense our world today is? divided between developed and developing countries, and for some that may not be appropriate even to frame it like that. But I would, I would just say an easy way to frame it is developed and developing countries. But then are we going to continue kind of a two-track world where we have some countries that are completely decarbonized and other countries 
that are part of this circular carbon economy that rely on carbon, uh, carbon fuels to power their economies because they can't afford a fully, then we'll say, uh, zero emissions or zero fossil fuels economy. Yes, I think that that you know, if the world is polarized, you know, uh, and and will be if will be polarized as is right now. It would be very difficult to achieve, you know, uh, zero emission by 2050 because it requires cooperation and cooperation in many fields. But cooperation means that, you know, you try to decarbonize places or technologies which are the most polluting. So, for example, you know, put a lot of resources not to decarbonize Europe, which already does pretty well, but, you know, to decarbonize India, China. Even Poland, you know, when yes. we have, you know, this coal mining, and uh, so so, and now governments are not very, uh, very likely to invest, you know, money outside, uh, you know, they the borders, it, yeah, domestic. because you know um, the arguments that creates jobs, you know. In, in other in other places, but on the other hand, when you look at the the this is a condition uh, which has to be fulfilled because otherwise we we won't do it. We won't achieve. You know, we have to lower consumption per capita. And what does it mean lower? If you make a simple simulation that we just take constant consumption per capita of everything, you know. Just like it is, you you dismantle consumption into you know pieces, commodities, etc., and keep it constant, and then you multiply it by number of population. Then we end up with uh, let's say 1.7 or two planets. So in order to be sustainable, we have to lower consumption, and we can't lower consumption in Africa because this consumption is low. There already, and I'm talking about material consumption yes. because services, you know, uh, you know, this is this type which you uh, don't have to and don't need to lower, but this material consumption should be lower. So we have to really, in developed countries, we have to restrict our material consumption, adjust, you know, to really to the level which uses really quite uh, minimum materials necessary in order to create room for you know increasing consumption in in now developing countries which means that per let's say if you compare this consumption materials per per capita it should you know it will converge not diverge but this is this is how the world should look like in 2050 in order to be zero emission uh, world. But I'm not sure whether we are going in this direction because we are talking about technologies, about, you know, electric cars, etc., etc. And we are not talking about this social aspect of transition that in order to really, uh, we have to, uh, to create efficient uh, economy of resources or or you know just to to uh, use resources in a 
economically efficient way globally, we should simply equalize many things and, you know, apply uh, solutions to the problem. I mean, solutions to the places where our problems and not just, you know, to polish, uh, you know, just to finish something which already is well done, you know, just to have it much better. Even if you becomes carbon neutral by 2050, which I think it's, you know, quite achievable, you know, the, this only 7%. And the point is whether our choices, if our choices here, technological, etc., how they will affect the rest of the world. For example, Europe will stop producing uh, internal combustion engine. Is it good for the world or not? If you know this technology is not developed, but most of the technology is, is, is European. And right now, the reduction of emissions from transportation is done basically by efficiency of car engines. This is the leading factor, not, uh, not electric cars, because the electric cars, you know, the, there's 1%. Global is and yes, 99% this yes it's mm. still small it will change but but of course but but it almost goes to kind of I think maybe back to our earlier discussion was uh, is there uh, it and actually to the Soviet times uh, if if I, this is a new idea I'm thinking through but basically it's a planned economy or restrictions within the economy that. I'm not saying that in France or in the United States they're going to completely restrict what people consume and buy and things like this, but but it goes to this natural resources and how much are we extracting? And we have tremendous shortages like in magnesium and cobalt and all these, not just rare earth minerals, but, but minerals that are being used for steel making, um, aluminum making, and there's not enough in the EU, for example, now. And now there's a looming shortage in November uh, because this stuff comes from China, and then China is a managed economy, and and there's shortages there. And so, are we entering a? Maybe this is too big, but I'll throw it out to you. Kind of reflecting back, especially on on your knowledge of the planned economy under on a, under a communist system, are are we entering a period of much more planned economic growth or government intervention in in different sectors of the economy? I mean. This is a tricky question because this bothers me a lot. Actually, you know, when when we look at the leader of you know this change, European Commission, you know, and it looks like I think that somewhere you know it's that the temptation to plan everything, yes, to say this technology is good, this is bad, and. Me, as an economist, I always, whenever I can, I advocate for being technology neutral, which means that, you know, let business and people decide what to do. Why? Because if you, if you do this that way, you will have a wider spectrum of technologies. You, some of them will fail. And you may say that this is, let's say, you know, these are lost resources, but they are lost resources only provided that alternative, which means that the provided that governments really, they know what will succeed. 
but they don't know. Yeah. They simply they simply think, well, we have uh, scarce resources, we have we are short of time, so we have to run faster. And in order to run faster, we should, uh, you know, uh, take off uh, our backs, you know, uh, technologies which look not promising right now. You know, let's focus on something which is promising. And this is like, you know, you you go to Himalaya and you have a, a mountain and you want to climb this mountain and you just work on the path, how to go there. And after, you know, preparation, everything, you you began and you go and there are winds, uh, weather is not good and you are tired and you stop for a while. But the, the sponsor of this excursion say, you know, you should go fast because, you know, you, you are losing time, you are late. But, you know, so we propose go different way and just leave your, all your, your, you know, this equipment here and, and go because then, you know, it will be faster. And then you have financial sector who says also you, you go, but you also don't need jackets, you know, that you will run even faster. So we try to run very fast, but we put all our eggs into one basket. Yeah, so we limit uh, solutions we want to explore to those who are now seem uh, who, who now seems as the most promising. Whereas in the future, it's not like this, you know. Uh, and and we should explore different things because we don't know how technology will develop. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I. I... We're running out of time. This is for sure, unfortunate. So I just want to maybe um, go uh, to the gas market since this you're working for mm -hmm. an oil and gas company and just look at the the global and this ties into what we're talking about now and even a post COVID world and the high price of oil right now. And maybe this is a typical question you always get, but but what what's going on in the oil market uh, overall in the in the in the world and why is the price so high and do you expect a lower price? And maybe we, you could bring in uh, our earlier discussion we had about investments. Yeah, I mean, what happens now on on, on the gas market? I'm. It's a effect of we have a huge price increases right now. They are moderated by by Russians who say that they will deliver more gas, but you know the the. the one can say that the reason for such a high prices is in the structure of gas market, which is that uh, only 13% of these, let's say, gas deliveries are market governed. You know, so this is LNG market. 16% uh, of gas deliveries, this is an import uh, pipe, uh, pipe import. So, and this is... Uh, price of this is uh, linked to to oil in this long term contact still linked to oil 71% of gas is consumed domestically so this is a we are talking about the gas market but you know only part of this gas deliveries is really market and europe rely very much on lng market and uh, for and simply the the result was that 
many of many countries, including Poland, you know, they they decided to go away from you know long-term contract links to Russia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this process worked quite well, and the liquid uh, LNG market was quite liquid. You could buy the market. Actually, you know, prices on the market was low enough to lower prices in long-term contract. But COVID caused, you know, deep decline in demand, and this deep, uh, decline of demand caused by, let's say, non-economic factor, this uh, pandemic plus, you know, restriction, uh, social distancing, etc., etc., and it lasted for more than one year. So supply of energy also shrank, and uh, starting this year. From February to June, in oil market, for example, which are follow very closely, we had increase in demand, which was uh, equal to five year increase in normal times, seven almost seven million barrels a day. Yeah. So, on gas market was similar thing, but oil market is more liquid. Gas market is not as liquid, so. You know, when, when there was a quick, you know, growth in, in demand, there was a growth in demand for, for gas, and it was not so easy to increase gas supplies by, you know, this pipe gas. So everybody reached to the LNG market, and it became, you know, too short. Yes. And, and on the top of that, uh, was that also the direction of gas flows, they changed because more gas LNG from US went to Asia where prices are much higher than in Europe. And this increase in gas prices, first, you know, caused that uh, there was a gas, uh, coal to gas switch, which prompt, you know, uh, prices uh, of coal up because in energy sector, you know, coal replaced gas. But then, uh, in the same sector, energy sector, uh, oil replaced gas. And we, uh, right now, we are talking about 500,000 barrels of additional oil necessary for power sector, which was not envisaged before. Wow. And therefore, prices go And up. this is for generators. Yes, this is mm -hmm. this is like, for, for uh, generators. For example, in China, where there's yes, a shortage yeah, yeah, of electricity. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. And and then okay, so so that we have that impact on on prices more immediately. And then uh, what has been? Maybe we could talk in the context of the EU, but even the United States, this longer term uh, shift in investments uh, by the oil and gas companies. Um, yeah, with the, I mean, the the, this is uh -huh. because when you look at the investment in upstream. So uh, last 10 years, investment in, uh, in oil and gas upstream, they declined by one-fifth, by, by half. And uh, the, uh, the use of uh, or consumption of oil and gas didn't increase. Uh, I mean, they didn't decline, that, uh, that went up. So you have less investment with higher consumption. And normally, four-fifths uh, four of investments in upstream goes to, to, uh, to maintain a basis for production, so to keep production flat. Only one-fifth is to increase it. 
so we certainly observe or, or, or see a kind of a, a lack of sentiment in investing in oil and, and gas, which at the end of the day transferring itself into lower possibility of this sector to increase suddenly, you know, output. And gas was treated as, as um, by, by European Commission and by investors as well all over the world, also as a, let's say, fuel which is not very welcome. Yes, so, but actually globally, we don't have a good support for uh, intermittent uh, energy and investment in uh, wind and, and photovoltaics, etc. They really accelerate and we have more and more of this energy. Whereas, you know, we don't have similar increase in capacity of, of, of gas. I'm not talking about consumption of gas or producing energy, but you have to have a capacity because if this remittent energy becomes a base load, you know, because it's not stable, it needs a support and we should invest in, in gas capacities, for example, as a insurance, as a security for the system. You know, we, we can use, I mean, even if energy is generated for, let's say, 90% of the year from, from uh, renewables, so in 10% of the year, you need to have a support. If this support is too short, so you can't have 10% of this energy, you have, you have full 100% of needed energy. And that gives you a capacity. And uh, we should invest in this capacity. And now the European Commission agreed, actually, uh, Ulrika von Leyen said that uh, gas also is, a, you know, is transitory fuel, but we need investment in gas because otherwise we don't have a, enough backup for, for uh, renewable um, energy. And also on the table is uh, price setting in energy market because now it's a merit price, which means the most expensive source of energy which is needed sets the price. Mm -hmm. And the other, you know, uh, they have a premium to, to this. But if you have in in UK or, or in, in uh, other countries, there are days where you have 100% energy from uh, oil, uh, no, no oil, from uh, wind and, and solar. And then energy price is zero and nobody earns on it, even wind and solar. So the mechanism should go from, you know, this uh, incremental uh, price setting to average price setting, which uh -huh. means that you know, energy from energy from uh, wind and uh, and solar. Actually, you have capital uh, expenditure. You have amortization of capital. You know, you have some uh, cost of maintenance, but these are predictable. They are fixed. They don't need to change. Yes. And uh, so the energy should not jump. Actually, the more energy we have from renewables, the cheaper energy should be on the market. Yes. But you know, the actually the price is said by gas, which on the uh, mechanism I, I explained, yes. which simply the market is uh, 
too short to supply, you know, these high increases in demand. Uh-huh. And then if you make it an average price, then you could actually get more investment to renewables because yes. they're actually yeah. cheaper yeah. to build yeah. Yeah. and maintain. And, you know, uh-huh. average price, there should be capacity mechanism for, you know, investment in, in, uh, in, gas, uh, in gas assets, energy assets. And of, of course, you know, if you really use gas as a, uh, to generate, uh, generate electricity, should be simply this part included in cost of energy, but then we won't have such a variation of prices or variability, like in the case when the price of electricity is solidly set by gas uh-huh. right wow. now. Wow. Okay. So the market, okay. That's a whole nother topic. How, how to price the market and uh, in, invest in it. And maybe that brings us or not to my final question, which is what is the energy system you would like to see or you think we will see in 2050? (laughs) I mean, uh, this is, uh, I mean, energy system, but uh, we are talking about uh, power generation only, not... uh, uh, I mean, this is my general question. I I think that at the end of the day, as I said, that everything shows that uh, we are going toward, uh, you know, the world where electricity will uh, dominate, and everything which can be electric will be electric, and the electricity will be greener and greener. We would need, uh, you know, as a uh, support, gas, then probably you know nuclear because it is necessary, hydrogen which we can produce from the excess of of energy, but. In in uh, areas where we cannot reduce, you know this, or it's not economically viable, we should globally develop a, a system of, uh, let's say, uh, capturing, you know, uh, and it, of of uh, uh, CO2, and this includes natural system like you know forestation, etc., but also installation of you know direct air capturing from air or, you know, and this uh, CO2 capture uh, is a important and significant, uh, let's say, uh, raw material for many, many other other products. Okay. But I think that the key, and we are not talking about it very often, is that, you know, the in order to have a sustainable energy, we should restrict our use of material for consumption. Because at the end of the day, whatever we produce is for consumption. So we should change our you know, consumption patterns just to use less, less uh, materials. Then there will be less energy needed. Yes. But this includes also you know, building space we occupy, you know, uh, transport we use. Yes. Uh, yes, this is... Uh, Gifts we buy for people. <laughs> Everything. Okay, Adam, thank you so much for making the time to, to meet with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it the more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. 
I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.